0: Welcome to Startup Dads, a podcast about the highs and lows of building a business and raising a family at the same time. For more information about the topics we cover on the podcast, and other Startup Dads related content, you can follow us on Twitter at Startup Dads Pod. I'm Amrit, co-founder of Hyper Exponential, a tech startup that I co-founded in 2017. It's grown from a two person team working out of my kitchen to a profitable business with several large clients and more than 20 team members across London and Europe. I'm also dad to Evie. My first child who was born last December. Welcome to this week's episode of Startup Dads. I'm absolutely delighted to welcome Ben Hardiman to the show. Ben, thanks very much for coming on the show. How are you today?
1: Fantastic, it's great to be here.
0: So can you tell us a little bit about what makes you a startup dad?
1: Well, I suppose I fulfill the two main criteria. I'm certainly a dad, <laughs> uh, father to three children, um, two boys, Lucas and Matthew, now teenagers, 15 and 17, and then little Charlotte, who's bringing up the rear, aged eight. So um, long commitment on the family front. And uh, as you can imagine, with two teenagers, um, they've been uh, a significant part of the startup journey, for the, which I've been on pretty much since the beginning of becoming a dad. It actually coincided with parenting happening to me, which is how sometimes fathers feel about these things. But yeah, no, yeah. Um, it's. I would say that having kids has really influenced all my entrepreneurial decision-making in one way or another. They go hand in hand, as a lot of other startup dads would, would recognize. I mean, I've always been an entrepreneur, but I started in my sort of tech startup journey upon becoming a parent, because I needed to move out of the filmmaking game fast because that wasn't bringing bringing home the bacon, which any new father will will realise becomes an urgent priority, so.
0: You've built an incredible array of different businesses. Um, Can you talk us through a little bit about what you you made?
1: I'd been a filmmaker in my twenties, but when I turned 30 and parenting sort of entered the horizon, I felt I wanted to still be engaged with the world of film but also kind of combine that with what I seem to enjoy the most, rather like Hugh Grant in About a Boy. He was a sort of professional internet researcher, which (laughs) kind of is what I found myself doing a lot of around about the year 2000. So I thought if I can combine filmmaking or the film world with uh, entrepreneurship, then um, it could be a winning combination, or so I thought. Um, I thought, well, what would be an interesting... Business that did just that, and I spotted on my one of my many ranges around uh, around the internet that there was a, a little company in America called Netflix. It was in the online DVD rental business, uh, and I also spotted that that there was nobody really doing it in the UK. There was a company, but they were just as you might picture a very bootstrapped you know, online DVD rental business to be. So I thought, well, I could probably have a go at that. And I'd read a book called How to Succeed in Business Without Raising Venture Capital. So I sort of lapped this book up and thought, well, I'm going to do it without raising venture capital too, like this book suggests. And so I I I thought, well, I'll build a UK-based online DVD rental company. You know, how hard can that be? I'll buy a few DVDs and then um, and then ship them out and watch the subscriptions come rolling in. The angle I'd put on WebFlix was make it the sort of film buff's choice. So I got some friends to write film reviews and all that stuff. The strategy was obviously in the first instance to try and build the business to be as big and successful as possible, which was the hard part when you're not using venture capital, which I was determined not to. So um, I actually looked for the first time into Acquiring domain names that were set to expire and Netflix.co.uk was set to expire. I thought, oh, this is a winner. I'll, I'll try and grab this. And back in those days, I would just wait for the date to pass and then try and register it. But as soon as I tried to do that, I could see that someone else had grabbed it. The guy had left his address. So I wrote him a rather sort of mewing letter saying, oh, I'm a smart startup entrepreneur. I want to sort of um, start a new business and, you know, really much appreciate it. If you'd sell me Netflix.co.uk, this was a British guy that grabbed it. And he wrote back saying, fine, it's £500. So I ran downstairs saying, honey, honey. Kids, (laughs) I bought Netflix for 500 pounds, not knowing anything about the law around IP and things. But I just knew this was a winner for little WebFlix because Netflix didn't have any uh, trademarks or anything in the UK. So I got that. I never connected it to the WebFlix. I never used it for traffic. I just parked it and um, waited for the phone call. They committed to launching in the UK and there was much excitement around this. They even bought you know, millions of DVDs to sort of populate their inventory for launch. But then as soon as they heard that um, Amazon was going to enter the same market back in the US, they backpedaled and decided not to launch here in order to concentrate on streaming, which was seemed like an impossible notion at that time. Yeah. But by that time, we'd had the call from the lawyer who wanted to buy the domain name. So that was coming to the end of the WebFlix journey, and it was just... We got to about 10,000 customers and we sold our customers to Love Film, who eventually merged with um, Amazon and a lot of other companies who appeared and competed with us along the way. And because of my commitment to not raise venture capital, we rather got left behind with a lot of new competitors that appeared. And uh, they had a famous meeting, or famous to me anyway, with Saul Klein. He'd launched a business called Video Island and they were doing tremendously well very quickly and I was very impressed by this. But he sat down opposite me and said, look, Ben, whilst I respect your notions to avoid venture capital in this game, you're never going to make it. You know, you're going to need millions of pounds to compete.
0: So loads of things I want to pick up on there, Ben, because actually I'm also someone that was, you know, not that interested in VC money historically we are VC back now a conscious choice you know a positive conscious choice not made out of being backed into a corner in any way I'm interested to know what your motivations were for staying away from VC money and potentially how that's changed over time
1: (laughs) so it's purely purely the book I'd read and the 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 notion of you know obviously keep majority ownership because I'd heard Mm. so many stories of, of VCs where you can get caught in this trap of if you underperform you'll be punished by having equity taken away from you and you you know the targets that you're sort of setting in your forecast and things that they might keep you to uh, mm-hmm. will be incredibly difficult to achieve it's, it's just one of those potentially poison chalices and whilst in every business i've done i've always aspired since anyway since webflix and towards the end of webflix we did look to get an exit for it through doing um an IPO through a shell company a sort of rapid flotation merging with some other smaller companies but sadly a deal couldn't be done in the end
0: so i, I want to pick up on you know the webflix journey and, and beyond because it looks like you like to go and take on the big boys it looks like a, you're either a sucker for punishment or um that you know you've got the real bravery to go after these real big big challenges i'm interested to know how that comes about and you know how you ended up on the businesses that you ended up going for
1: with my lack of experience of working within any sort of sizable industry over any extended period, I was pushed into, I suppose, trying to kind of emulate the sorts of businesses that I enjoyed using or would like to use. So that presents you with mostly B2C options. Yes. And But the problem with B2C options, if you haven't got any IP and things, is, is always competition, better-backed competitors, brainier competitors, more committed and harder working competitors that just appear here, there and everywhere. I suppose, yeah, somehow I've always stumbled into these tiny margin, high volume B2C businesses, which are actually really difficult to raise funding for as well because of the competitive issues, It immediately puts your team under the spotlight. And they're asking themselves, well, why on earth are you going to succeed? The bigger challenges are the most appealing because I think I suppose it's something to do with wanting to reach the public you know I, in my yeah. 20s i was into making films because i wanted to broadcast something to people and for, for it to you know affect them in some way emotionally and i suppose it's that continuing yearning for i suppose an audience of one's contemporaries you know but it is tough
0: yeah yeah i'd love to pick up on you know dealing with competition in these like you say spaces where as you say the appeal is a bit more obvious and the competition therefore uh, a little bit more intense how did you you know uh, uh, kind of stay focused on your vision to build what you wanted to build without being dragged into you know it's like that if you're riding a motorbike and you look at something you end up riding into it
1: well the hard thing is sticking to that initial vision um, after a brief sojourn and after netflix in domain name mining and drop catching. I got very excited about the fact that you could buy something for 500 and sell it for six figures. So I thought, well, this is the way to go. But again, that's also very competitive. And uh, that also became an industry which um, all the great domains just started to get better better and better funded people catching them so you couldn't catch them, et cetera, et cetera. When it came to Zappa, which was the next vision, it initially started as something quite different, but then the business became... A re-commerce company in the vein of music magpie but whilst we spent most of our journey seeming to try and copy and emulate them actually it started as something completely different and with Webflix, i'd outsourced the development of the technology and that was the mistake that i didn't want to make again because when investors came to WebFlix, they looked at the platform we'd built and they realized they'd have to start again from scratch uh, if they were going to invest, and so I, I, I hooked up with a, a chap that I met through my network called Matt White, who's a very capable and quite brilliant developer, really in a way. And I thought, well, Matt, why don't you and I, you know, um, do a startup together? And um, I thought, well, this his uh, experience lent itself, I thought, very well to another startup that I had in mind. But but Zappa was originally intended to be a marketplace for uh, books, CDs, DVDs, and computer games, where you would. You'd, you'd rent a barcode scanner in the post. It would come to you. You'd scan all your books on your shelves, all your DVDs, uh, all your CDs, post it back. And then we would populate your shop with images, valuations. And it yeah. would be like a the idea is it'd be like a sort of stock market for everything you had in your home. And we'd tell That's you every cool. day that your stock had gone up a bit. And just Matt looked at me like I was out of my gourd and just said, mate, I can't. You know, it'll take me years to build this and I don't even understand what you're trying to achieve here kind of thing <laughs> at that time we could see that Amazon had started what is now its prime delivery service where they hold people's inventory and ship them direct to customers it was called fulfillment by Amazon and there was nobody doing it and we noticed that um, you know for example uh, Da Vinci Code which was the most popular paperback in history at that point uh, Dan Brown's Da Vinci Code we realized that if we Got hold of pallets of you know copies of that from from charity shops or where, wherever, and, and shipped them to Amazon. Everyone would buy our copies because we'd be the only sort of prime seller there. So we realised we could get hold of inventory for peanuts and then sell it on Amazon for this glorious margin. Um, and so we just suddenly, instead of doing this digital media shop that we'd had envisaged, we just simply set up a business in. In Chiswick, a small warehouse, just shipping pallets to Amazon of any old cheap stuff we could acquire. You know, by advertising on Gumtree, you know, looking for books, looking for CDs, looking for DVDs. And boy, did they sell. And Matt, you know, because because at that point uh, there was no software to help you interface with Amazon's fulfillment system. Matt had to code his own one for Zappa, which enabled us to just scan stuff in and automatically price. So we were building our own software that just made it easiest for us to ship in volume and so you start making hay but the sun didn't shine for too long before a lot of other better bigger funded businesses just got in on the game and then the game became how do we acquire stuff from the public and we thought well there's this company music magpies to be doing something pretty similar why don't we slightly emulate what they're doing so we sort of became an accidental competitor to them Even with what I thought was an impeccable reputation, having launched this Netflix competitor, uh, I I still didn't manage to raise a penny for for Zappa until we'd actually finished the website. And the website took what we thought would be three or four months, but it took about 18 months to finish and launch. And it was quite a hard journey, me and Matt sitting in a room together whilst he coded and I sort of drummed my fingers, you know, is it going to be ready next month? Is it going to be ready next month? But we did eventually get there and brought on some investors instead of drumming my fingers I thought I'd you know go back to sort of a bit of internet surfing and things and thought well why don't we apply for Dragon's Den um it might come in handy once we're actually launched you never know type of thing you always think things are going to happen a lot quicker uh than they do I applied for Dragon's Den about six months before we went live um and then there's a whole process to appear on the show and the idea was to to try and treat Dragon's Den as a very serious, you know, business investment forum. I thought I'd take the proper entrepreneurial stance and, you know, somehow we would walk it. And the whole idea is let's let's approach it in a way that they'll definitely want to feature us. And uh, and let's also ask for an amount of money that means that we'll definitely end up not on the cutting room floor, no matter what yeah. happens. Yeah. <laughs> and then when the episode goes out, even if we don't raise any money, they will get this incredible boost in traffic and zapper yeah. will be known you know across the nation
0: but it panned out slightly differently from that though didn't it you made it more further than that so
1: well it, it, it did it didn't but we'd hope to appear on the show and sort of sign up peter jones or you know duncan bannertine you know at the moment we'd launched and we could sort of go off into the sunset together but unfortunately we needed outside investment before then and that in- outside investment that we'd secured which was about 50 grand which was quite a punt from the investors on a website that had only just gone live, they wanted a sizable sizable chunk of equity for that because they were also putting in a lot of time and effort and, you know, helping us along the way. But it didn't go down too well with the dragons that we were standing in front of them four months later saying, you know, we want, you know, £250,000 for sort of, you know, 5% or 8% of the business or something, um, when three months before we'd put 50,000 in and given away 25% or something like that. so. It made the whole thing very antagonistic in the den itself, which I wasn't really expecting. But that's the whole thing about that show, is they'll make sure they tackle you in an area that you're not really expecting. But it's pure theatre and pantomime. Of course, it's not uh, a serious business investment for them. It's, for us, it was an hour and a half filming in front of these very well-made-up pantomime villains <laughs> in this sort of rickety-looking old set. Um, and... Um, and of course they then edit that down to whatever the length of your segment was in our case it was about 9 minutes long and they can do with it what they will and they will do that so thank goodness Theo made the offer at the end of it because i think if he hadn't made an offer the, the editor would have re-edited it to make me look really <laughs> stupid and put in pauses where you know ever they wanted and so it was a but it was a it was a great experience matt was very reluctant to do it he took some persuading but i think in the end, um, it's been, you know, a positive experience. It's a challenge for any entrepreneur just in terms of anxiety reduction exercise to go on and do that. So it was nice to when you overcome these great fears like public speaking it helps you, you know, helps build your confidence in other ways, assuming it, it, it isn't a total disaster, which fortunately it wasn't.
0: You've done a lot of different businesses, a lot of different areas and domains, and you've had kids along the way. What did you need to do and how did your life change as you started a new business with kids being, uh, you know, a, a key part of your life? And, you know, as you have more kids, you know, your life and family situation and obligations change. So, you know, how did your life change as that happened and how did that approach, you know, change your approach to entrepreneurship?
1: Well, the beauty of being an entrepreneur, many fellow entrepreneurs will recognize it's often a, either a conscious or subconscious desire to just not have a boss and being your own boss especially in this age of broadband proliferating essentially means that with all the travails that can come with it you can be at home whenever you want if not all the time and be there for the first few years of your children's lives which is so precious up until about the age of say 6 or 7 uh, that's when you know children become fully formed around about that age and, and whilst of course schools and things will influence them and you will influence them beyond that in a myriad of ways they become who they are at that age and so it was just a wonderful privilege to be around them. The boys when they were very young in the web flicks and, and, and Zappa days uh, but also it's the extra motivation you know you know that um, failure isn't an option and so you, you, you build the sorts of relationships with investors and your board in the company that's all around this sort of all-in commitment that investors really like to see. You know, this guy is all in. He's a family man. You know, this he's a hundred percent. He's not doing anything else but this. That's, this is what I want as an investor. You know, I'm getting, uh, in the case of Zappa with the early investors, I'm getting thirty percent of a company for relatively little money, but it's a big, a big risk. And, and I know that you know, here's someone who's all in on this and is you know is, is fully committed to doing it. So it's kind of those investor relationships because you're always looking for more money and you're always looking ahead to when you know the next funding round is required and the key to securing those funding rounds is always making sure that your your investors are completely prepared for when that money runs out and I think having a chorus from the mother of your children which is pretty persistent so you know perhaps a proper job would be better than this <laughs> you know don't you think maybe you know uh, you should have asked Netflix for a lowly position when they did eventually come to the UK <laughs> you know there is that the proper job conversation which you know um, because entrepreneurship is all about failure to some degree or another after failure whilst one looks at them as successes I suppose disappointments is a better way of looking at it. it's important to see them as you know learning processes really. And you know, investors have don't have a problem with businesses not getting you know billion dollar exits, but they want to see that at every stage you're you know adapting to circumstance and continue with this never say die attitude. And and that came about with Zappa very much. I mean, that was a really tough business. You've got Music Magpie against you, you've got a declining market in a way, and when you're in a declining market such as used physical media or CDs, DVDs, games, it's always a last man standing scenario. So I never, you know, Zappa's still around and it's now thriving, uh, you know, in, 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 in a sense, considering how tough the market's got by pivot after pivot. And um, I think there's probably about three or four occasions with that business where I think even the board of the company had thought, you know, it's all over for Zappa, they can't continue on this. And yet I'd go away and me and Matt come back to them two or three months later like no we've solved it we're going to crack this we're carrying on they're like what How have you sort of done that and and I think um you know same with being a dad there's you know you've got a you're committing to parenting and failure isn't an option it's the same thing and these two things run in run in parallel and of course the whole thing is a nice dream in the future that somehow you'll make a big success of it and your kids will be proud of what you've done and I've often felt that as a parent it's not what you'll say to your children or the lessons you deliver to them verbally or you know the clever ways that you help them resolve challenges it's more just who are you what do you do what are your values what are your attitudes to work and and are you aiming high are you it's all very well saying to your kids you know you must live for your dreams and do the things that you you know no matter how challenging, but if your life doesn't reflect that, then they're probably not gonna concede that you've done something similar and therefore they could shoot for the moon. But then I guess with startups the failure rate's very high. So it's kind of um, you know, it's also how you deal with the challenges with you know, with, with family, that they they want to see that you're, you know, that you're on to the next thing and you're you're not giving up.
0: Yeah. And how, and how did you, I suppose, you know, when you were going through these difficult periods, how do you manage that relationship with family, work-life balance, you know, work-life fit, whatever phrase people like to use? Because, you know, that's a difficult challenge for any founder, right? And when you're up against it, you know, prioritizing and working out when to go again and when to, you know, take a step back and go, you know what, it's time for a bit of downtime. How, how did you make that work?
1: Well, basically it was that notion of what's what's the worst that can can happen here i mean one of the beauties of you know having limited companies and 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 you know the whole point of a company is that your your liability is supposed to be personally limited so the worst that can happen with a failed business unless you've really teed up a lot of personal guarantees and gone in my mind way too far done a Done a Dyson and mortgaged your entire you know family pile without your wife even knowing. Or I'm not sure that's true with Dyson, but I think it's something along those lines. You know, that's proper level of commitment where you're actually opening yourself up to unbelievable levels of stress if failure happens. But if you mitigate the risk by not borrowing personally to excess, at least you'll always have gained uh, you know valuable startup experience. And everyone should keep in mind that investors want to see that you've done businesses before. If the businesses that everyone had done before had been successful, you wouldn't need to come to those investors originally. You'd keep all the equity in the business and just charge ahead without them. So you know, if you're doing a startup and it's finding things are challenging, just tell yourself you're always going to have a roof over your head. You're always going to somehow get food on the table. That's why you got to where you are at that point. And if the current business model isn't going to work you just need to then lend yourself to convincing your investors that the pivot you've now got in mind is is the best thing since sliced bread and they need to come on board and that's all about attitude I think and I guess that I've been very fortunate to have early stage investors in every business and it's just such a valuable thing to have is just more experienced mentors Mm. who will help you know, who'll recognize when you're in a hole and support you in in getting out of it for for your mutual benefit. And that's that's what startups are all about, especially in B2C anyway.
0: And how, how you know, I suppose as you've got older and, you know, there's just lots of talk about the preconceptions against older founders, as you touched on earlier, where you've got kids and things are a little bit different. How have you found that? You know, Gameru you set up in 2019. I think the world has changed a little bit in its attitude towards experience and hustle culture, I suppose. But how have you found that? And how's that played out for you?
1: I think I once read that, you know, the last thing investors want to see is, uh, you know, a founder in his 50s, still cracking on with the same old ideas, you know, losing touch with the young people and what they're really into. And I did feel the sort of hackles go up a bit. I thought, well, hold on a minute, that is quite similar. So should I do Gameroo? Because that's, it's physical discs again. You know, they're definitely on the way out. But I felt that It's an area that I'm passionate about. Gaming has almost been the area where I've demonstrated the most interest over the years. And I thought, well, passion's what's going to kind of carry me through. But it's it's probably going to be quite a big ask to, to raise money from the same people that I've been involved with before. It's going to be, you know, we're now in an environment where you can fill stadiums with entrepreneurs. You know, 15 years ago, there was probably felt like there was only a few thousand of us you know whereas now there's many hundreds of thousands I I suspect and you're now having to really get your product into the market properly and the tools are much easier to do that and the barriers are sort of falling down all the time and you can use Shopify to launch your shop and you know it's not difficult for people to to enter the market cheaply and efficiently and so That combined with the fact that it's a third sort of B2C business, which um, probably isn't going to excite investors. I think I just made a decision not to go out to to the investment market until we had sufficient traction. But then this idea of crowdfunding came about. And so we kind of built the launch of Gameroo around that. Again, slightly not realizing that with crowdfunding, you kind of need to sew up 70, 80% of your total investment before you do it. Uh, it looks like, yeah, it kind of looks like they're getting all the money from the crowd. But actually, when the when the pitches go live, most of the investment, almost all of it, has often been generated in the private sale phase from people that they already know. So as soon as the Crowdcube project was underway, I pretty quickly had to pull out all my old network of friends, family, investors, and say, look, we're doing this crowdfund. Do you want to come on board? A, a few old mates who'd known me from ventures in the past were very supportive and that was you know quite flattering really so you know looking forward to kind of delivering on that promise for the investors that we've got and and then doing a big raise next year we're hoping to kind of raise half a million on a decent valuation uh but we need to get that early traction on Gameru 2.0 which is launching in about a month we've spent all the crowdfund on on the product and developing that and honing it and relaunching a website new apps that's going to be quite something.
0: Awesome. So I suppose the question I, I like to ask all guests is one I think be particularly interesting to ask uh, you, Ben. So your journey in entrepreneurship, it sounds like you've been up against it. You've <laughs> A journey that includes Dragon's Den, taking on the big boys. What's the biggest lesson you've learned from entrepreneurship that you want to pass on to your kids?
1: Well, it's recognition that it's a lifetime addiction. Um, all the successful entrepreneurs I know have, have never stopped it's not something you you're going to be able to pack in and go back to having a normal job very easily, uh, although tempting offers may come. So, you know, my advice would be time your jump into entrepreneurialism at the right point. You've got to be ready financially, I think, to shoulder that first failure without it breaking you. That's not to assume it will be a failure, but. You know, your first startup is going to be a learning process. You know, of course, there are ways to mitigate that risk. I suppose the best way to mitigate it is to make sure you're partnering with someone who's got some decent experience. You know, that's the that's the other bit. So it's um, it's a lifetime addiction, but you can't do it alone. So make sure you team up with people who are, are better and smarter than you to kind of drag you along.
0: Certainly lessons are well earned. So Ben, we close the show up with the startup shout-out section where we shine a light on some startup founders, entrepreneurs, investors, anyone in the startup ecosystem that we admire. Startup shout Who's your startup shout-out, Ben?
1: Well, it's my old mentor, Jasper Smith, who is to me is the is the de facto Hollywood entrepreneur in the British Hollywood version, if there was such a thing. I've known him since, since we were teenagers. We sort of grew up together, and um, he joined me to a large extent with, you know, in, in helping you know, start the WebFlix journey. And I, I think without him, his early input, because by the time I started WebFlix, he'd, he'd already built and exited a very significantly sized business in the gaming sector. And for someone who you know, graduated as a sculptor, Uh, and who was never, seemed to me, had any sort of business training or anything like that. He demonstrated this incredible level of calm, quiet, generous, sort of open confidence that was just very infectious to all the people around him. He sort of exuded a very generous and welcoming attitude to entrepreneurialism, which I still, I've never quite managed to mirror or mimic in any way. It's a unique skill he has. He had this tremendous exit with a company called PlayJam um, back in the noughties. To he sold that to a big American company for many, many millions. He's now running a business called Arxon which is an explorer super yacht business. And you know, talk about one of the biggest possible imaginable challenges. He built a website, found a boatyard. Uh, conceived of hybrid explorer vessels this is a man who's obviously got a passion for sailing and somehow convinced investors to to buy that first boat which is a terribly difficult thing to do so they're they're, they're building the first vessel and uh, look set to achieve a tremendous amount of success with a great eco-conscious message and you know huge levels of of innovation and um My big shout out definitely goes to Jasper, who's, whilst he's not always invested in every business I've done, he's always been incredibly supportive and uh, is, I think, a shining light to all investors out there. Well worth looking into his background and businesses because he's he's one of the greats.
0: That's great to hear. And it's always really good to hear about super successful impact people that are good human beings that are in it to make the, the ecosystem a little bit better. Ben, that's been absolutely awesome. Thank you so much for coming on the show.
1: Thanks for having me, Emma. It's been a pleasure.
0: Many thanks to today's guest. You'll find links to them and their work in the show notes. It would really help us if you shared the show with a friend or colleague. So if you know someone who might find this podcast valuable, please pass it on to them. If you'd like to connect with me, reach out on Twitter at Startup Dads Pod.